0: Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a digital content creator, patient advocate and co-founder of Fertility Matters at Work, which is on a mission to get you better supported whilst going through all this at work. And I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant, In this new series of The Fertility Podcast, we're going behind the scenes of IVF. Do listen to the end of every episode because we want to hear from you. Let's get stuck in. This series of The Fertility Podcast is sponsored by Tomorrow, whose mission is to safeguard life's most precious cells using their technology to bring a new standard of care to the management of frozen eggs and embryos. Now, the millions of frozen eggs and embryos under clinic care today are using tools and technologies not updated in decades decades when tomorrow came along it brought much needed innovation to IVF labs learn more by visiting tomorrow.org that's t m r w org so welcome to the final episode in this series of the fertility podcast we've been talking about behind the scenes of IVF and we've talked about a range of things. We've talked about the whole green conversation and I actually just saw on my Instagram somebody commented on The Real I'd Shared when we did that episode where I'd said, have you thought about this? And, and there's some very noisy people your end, aren't there, Kate? Kate's shaking her head at me. I'm sorry. Um, do you know what? It's always a funny thing. I think the male voice carries much more than the female voice from afar. Men, I don't think, can
1: whisper. Do you think? I know I've just... No, of well, the, the, train of thought. this chap... So, anyway, I'm in my shared workspace today. And this chap, he's got a really nice voice, but I, I'm quite into men's voices. <laughs> but, know we know that if you've listened to this Oh, series. yes, you do, don't you? I've got, I've got a thing about men's voices. Uh, but then when you meet them, and I'm not saying this about um, Giles, because Giles was a very lovely man, but when you meet them, often their voice doesn't match up to their looks if that makes sense yeah, or
0: their looks don't match up to their yeah, voice exactly. Yeah,
1: exactly. Right, right. so this chap really nice guy lovely voice and he's often speaking to his clients on you know doing the similar to what I'm doing but speaking to his clients really nice tone no oh, does not match up to his voice at all <laughs> doesn't look like it So disappointing.
0: Do share any male voice fantasies that have been shattered by meeting the person, because I'll give you a very good example. So when I started at my heart radio job doing the breakfast show, I'd had a conversation before I went to meet them all with the guy who was going to be my boss. And like you say, Kate, I was really like, he had an amazing voice. Needless to say, when I met him in person... He did not live up to the voice. But that's often the way with radio anyway, because often, you know, you don't see the people and you are totally taken by voices. That's why radio often has the su- success it has, because, you know, it's just this voice that, you know, it's like when you read a book and then you see the movie, it doesn't always live up to your expectations. When you sometimes see a radio presenter, IRL, maybe you found that when you first saw Kate and I. Well, that we I was literally about to say,
1: we're saying this, and then people are probably thinking, I wonder what Kate and that looked like, and then see bits yeah. of us and like, oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Feel free to let us know we've totally digressed on where we started which was just to have a little recap about this series of the fertility podcast because we wanted to do something different and have a look behind the scenes and we we started talking about the whole green conversation asking you whether it was something that mattered about whether your clinic was sustainable and we had quite a resounding no from you that it wasn't something that you're thinking about and we totally get that it was just more that we thought it would be of interest which you were saying it was of interest to understand what actually goes on in terms of the waste that unfortunately the whole IVF process does add to our environmental footprint. We've talked about corporate IVF and what that means. Um, And we're going to be discussing a bit more about that in this episode, because if you've heard, we were talking about how a lot of the clinic groups have been brought up and are now managed very differently to how they used to be. Uh, we've talked about cryo storage and, and the future of cryo storage and also what is happening with your frozen embryos. And again, it's been really interesting hearing your feedback. It's good to know that this is of interest to you because that's the point of us doing you know the podcast that, that we do. So what this final episode is about is looking at the future of IVF. And you're going to hear a conversation that we have with a fertility expert called Stuart Avery. And um, one of the things that's really interesting about Stuart, he was part of a big group setup. And we talked about this move from the clinician-owned model to the group model. And what you're going to hear about with Stuart is his experience of being in that space and what it's like coming back and now being the clinician owning the clinic. So have a listen.
2: IVF has really changed in the way the services are provided over the last 10 years. And I've very much been part of that journey and had personal experience with it. So I've experienced both working in the NHS, working for the traditional entrepreneur doctor-led clinic, and also working in the strange new world of private equity. And I think it's quite sobering that the biggest provider of IVF in the the UK now is private equity. And if you look around the world, the trend is for private equity to come into countries and essentially roll up clinics uh, to become chains. Um, And and I think the motivation behind why clinics do what they do can become coloured. So I, I think it's a really interesting space we have. I do feel there's some positive aspects to it. So, you know, there's issues about raising potential quality through competition. But I also believe that it's certainly not traditional healthcare, And it's a discussion that people need to have because I think most people, particularly patients, are probably unaware of it.
1: We talk and we have talked in our previous episodes about the fact that we're so, as patients, patients are so used to being patients, but actually they need to become consumers. And it's a completely different mindset, isn't it?
2: So I think you're absolutely right. And I think we can learn a lot from our American um, friends over the water who are much more traditionally assertive about their health care. And, and my own view is that Fertility is an illness that's becoming demedicalized. We are now entering a phase where patients are being treated purely as customers. And my own personal view is the real way forward lies somewhere in the middle. It, it goes with understanding that there's a healthcare need here, but that actually the service might actually be offered in, in a caring, compassionate, but also high quality way. So there's a middle ground that recognises the patient experience, but that that could be improved by a customer experience.
0: And you've gone full circle now with Aria Mm. Fertility. You're now the clinician with the clinic. So in terms of that patient experience, are there certain things that you've had feedback on that are really working? Maybe you've changed tack from when you were starting or when you were previously, you know, within the groups?
2: We needed to understand we're coming into a very crowded, very competitive market. And what might differentiate us from the big chains who are incredibly difficult to compete with uh, economically? And, And when we looked around we felt that all of the good clinics had pretty similar success rates. Most of the pricing was relatively similar, but what we were astounded with was the number of mediocre patient experiences that were out there. And so that's where we've decided to focus, to to really, really look after patients. At the same time, offer very high quality results. But actually remember there's a human being on the end of all of this and using technology to enhance the patient experience as well in terms of convenience. Um, and so that's what we, we think actually what really differentiates clinics now is not some p- uh, pregnancy result that's highly polished on a website. Because when you look at the HFAA league table, most of the good clinics were all pretty similar. We believe what differentiates is that patient's experience, that sort of intangible do I feel comfortable and confident in a place that they're really going to look out for me and squeeze every single percentage point out on my side?
1: That's really interesting you say that, because that's one of the things I always, when I'm discussing choosing a clinic with my patients, I always talk about the most important thing to do is feel confident and comfortable with your clinic and your clinician and if you can achieve that then you're kind of halfway there. But I just want to pick up on what you said about technology and advances in technology because the other reason we want to talk to you was about the future of IVF. And we're just really intrigued to find out what you see in terms of developments in the IVF process. What might we be seeing in the future? What what is kind of happening out there? Things like I'm always intrigued about we manipulate the sperm, the embryo, but then when we put the embryo back into the uterus, I always talk about this this, this big black hole. There's not much more that we can do at that point, and it, it's left to Mother Nature. Are there any advances or any things that you're seeing post-embryo transfer or anything, really, that could be exciting for the future?
2: So there's a huge amount uh, of tech changes uh, that, are, that are here now, and, and there's a huge amount that are coming tomorrow. What, what's interesting is is there are an enormous number of new tech Uh, companies coming into this sector, um, who come in with an almost evangelical belief that tech will solve all of the problems, that tech will trump biology. And and I'm, I'm unfortunately not as enthusiastic as they are. I can see huge advantages to tech in terms of improving results and in terms of improving the patient experience. But do I genuinely believe that tech can trump biology? I'm not sure I would be that confident. So I think we need to be quite realistic in understanding what tech can do. Certainly, if you look at developments within the lab, it's really all around automation and miniaturization. And that's then leading to changes in staffing skill mixes as well. So there's no doubt that tech has an enormous amount to bring in terms of getting every single percentage point that you possibly can out of the actual treatment procedure itself. But ultimately, can it trump the biology in terms of quality of sperm and quality of eggs? Possibly not. But it can certainly make the process more efficient. It can probably get you pregnant at the moment, technology cannot fundamentally change a bad quality sperm or a bad quality egg. So it's about using the natural resources that we have and, and then just getting the best possible result that we can. But these changes are coming now. And and I, I think as automation comes in, I think that will squeeze a few extra points. And as miniaturization comes in, that will help democratize the process by making it cheaper.
0: Just on those points, Stuart, is that kind of information likely to be transferred through to the patient? Or is it more just helping the kind of efficiencies behind the scenes, you know, within the lab? I
2: think most of the tech is around improving how the lab actually works. I think tech will come into the patient experience as well. And we'll be seeing a lot more about IVF at home, so we'll be seeing saliva tests at home, replacing, uh, coming into the clinic for bloods. We'll see e-consenting. E- um, and, and of course, the, the COVID pandemic has massively accelerated this. We'll even see pieces where the patient will inject herself with a drug at home and the syringe will contact the clinic to tell them that the patient has had X amount of drug at 9.30 in the morning.
0: Wow. Gosh. And of
2: course, the very latest things that are being trialed are home ultrasound where the patient does her own ultrasound at home. Now, the research on that's really interesting because it shows that the clinic gets sent great images and can see exactly what's happening in the patient's pelvis with the patient doing her own scan. But the downside is the patient then misses that communication with the clinic where she has reassurance that everything's been seen and reassurance about what her next step is. So the technology is really good. It's really exciting, but we mustn't be seduced by the technology. We need to remember that it's there as an aid or a help for patient care.
1: Do you think, Stuart, the things that you've been talking about, IVF at home, do you think that's in part come about because of the pandemic and the fact that we're all locked down and therefore we were doing so much more at home?
2: I don't think it's come about as a result of that, but I think it's been accelerated by that. I think it's really come about... By, by most patients, most women that we see are working. They have very busy lives. Mm. And the reality here is although having a baby is an absolute priority, if we can make that more convenient for women so that they can carry on with their normal lives, that's gotta be a positive way forward.
0: Now I'm intrigued when we're talking about accessibility and we're talking about IVF at home, that sounds to me like the level that you'd get if you're paying for your treatment rather than potentially what you get access to on the NHS. And when we're talking about accessibility to maybe those more minority groups who we know from the HFEA's research, black and ethnic minority groups who aren't getting access to treatment due to awareness or just knowing they can, that almost feels to me as that would make it even harder for them.
2: What do you think about that, Stuart? I completely agree. I think we have to be very aware about exacerbating inequalities. And so you have to be very careful about how you offer things to patients. But I also strongly believe working in the NHS myself, that we mustn't accept mediocrity within the NHS that actually there's no reason why the NHS can't be at the cutting edge of technology, given the patient volume that we have coming through. So uh, it, it drives me crazy when people will accept less from their NHS experience. And sometimes NHS clinics will accept less as well. My view is the, the standard and the quality of care should be the same for the patient. Um, I think where the NHS struggles is, is time and, and um, speed of access. Um, But in terms of actually what happens to the patient during treatment, there's no reason why the NHS can't be as forward thinking uh, and as cutting edge as the private sector.
1: I think that's absolutely fascinating. And Natalie, I think we need to do a whole episode on its own about IVF at home, really, don't we? Because there's so much there. Obviously, we've talked about tech and the new advances in there. What about medical treatments, Stuart? Anything that you're seeing coming through for the future of IVF with regards to new medical treatments?
2: So I think treatments are becoming more convenient, I think the particular uh, drug protocols that we use now are more convenient and safer. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the days of women queuing outside the the clinic at 7am on a cold January morning to get their injection. And and we have actually come on leaps and bounds in terms of reducing side effects, making treatment more convenient and, and also making treatment significantly safer. So I think, again, the number of women that actually are now really harmed by IVF treatment physically in terms of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome is becoming incredibly rare, uh, probably less than 1% given, given modern protocols with GNRH antagonists and uh, bucerolin or agonist triggers. So I think treatments are becoming safer and easier. But I think it's still a long way to go. You know, we'd love the, the, the one day to, to be getting sort of oral stimulation drugs. One thing that I do see pausing is the sort of the acceleration towards gentle or natural cycle IVF. Oh. I think the idea of this was really fascinating that potentially, could you manipulate somebody hormonally less aggressively? and end up getting better quality eggs. And it was immediately more attractive to patients. Just just the name, gentle IVF or soft IVF. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? Mm. But I think there's increasing evidence now to actually question that philosophical strategy that you get better quality eggs. Um, And so I see that potentially being less common, uh, despite its attractiveness to patients. Because I think the science probably doesn't back it up.
0: Okay, good to know. What about, Stuart, ICSI, for example. Um, mm-hmm. I, am I right in saying that, that that the process hasn't changed since since it, it started? And I'm totally with if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But I just wondered what your feelings were
2: about ICSI. So there's there's a couple of elements to ICSI. One is when should you use it? And then number two, can you can you improve it and make it any better? So there's the UK is the only country in the world where our ICSI rates are going down. Okay, in the rest of the world, ICSI rates are going up and there's a huge debate in the sector around the use of ICSI outside its traditional indication of severe male factor infertility. I think everybody believes that for severe male factor infertility, the use of ICSI is uh, proven uh, and is well accepted and you get much better results. What's more controversial are should you use ICSI where actually the sperm looks fine? And most of the data from prospective randomized controlled trials show it doesn't bring any benefit. Hence, the regulator, HFEA's perspective that we should be reducing the amount of ICSI. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, if you look at the entire HFEA database itself, and then you look at patients with normal sperm and whether you used ICSI or not, you get more pregnancies with the ICSI. So I think it's a question of finding a balance. In the US, it's about 70%. In the UK, it's about 50%. The balance probably lies somewhere in the middle. There's some fascinating advances about robotic ICSI. So instead of the patient picking the nicest sperm, securing the egg, and injecting uh, the egg with the sperm, which is an incredibly delicate micromanipulative procedure, could a robot do it better? And I'm absolutely fascinated to see the use of robotics within our field because I think there probably are some things that the robot might be more sensitive to. And it would not surprise me if automated robotic ICSI is something that we'll see very soon.
0: Wow. Uh, because we talk with embryologists as well and I know that the, the practice of ICSI is, is a something, isn't it, that, that that takes takes a lot of it. I'm so pleased that you talked about it being robotic with the actual ICSI process and not the sample collection because I wondered where we were going <laughs> with that. <laughs> Are there any other developments? I mean, we've talked with Tomorrow, for example, about cryo storage and the impact that mm. that has. I mean, what do you think about that whole move towards this kind of more robo- robotic um, state of... Of cryo storage and the need for it
2: so I think this is a really interesting point first of all if you look at the amount of egg storage that's going on clinics are going to become storage centers mm. it's almost like a private clinics are going to become storage businesses because so many people will have gametes in storage and there's a psychology around storage about you know can you throw it away I mean I struggled to throw away my cds from the 1990s if I had eggs or sperm in storage, I'd be really worried whether I could throw them away, even if my family was complete. So the 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 concept of storage is important. And then when you walk around the IVF laboratory, it looks tremendously advanced and 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 you know very cutting edge. But when you walk into the cryo storage room, it looks exactly like it did in nineteen seventy-eight. So are tomorrow onto something? I think they probably are. Um, And it's a question of looking at that technology and trying to make it more efficient for clinics and ultimately safer and more robust for patients. So I, I, I expect to see a lot more developments in the storage sector.
1: My question, my last question for you, actually, Stuart, is around IUI. I've noticed that obviously over the last few years, this has really dropped, Uh, yet it's very significant for same-sex patients. And I just wondered what your thoughts are on on IUI and, you know, are we going to see anything else or is it just going to disappear now?
2: So uh, IUI, it's kind of low-tech, it's kind of old-fashioned, it's kind of low-results but it's probably still got a place. And I think it's a question of making sure that the right treatment goes to the right patient. One of the difficulties with IUI is there were many clinics where IUI is all they did. So if a patient, you walk through their door, you got IUI. Um, Whereas I'm much more of a fan of clinics that can actually offer all treatments so that the patient gets the treatment that's right for them, as opposed to the treatment that the clinic has. And, And that includes IVF. You know, there are many people that walk into a fertility clinic And they kept put on the IVF conveyor belt when actually other things could work. So for me, it's a question of informed decision making. And actually for a couple uh, or or a single person, IUI may be an entirely valid choice, even with its lower success rate, uh, because actually it's all they actually might need. So I think for us, it's a question of looking at all of the treatments both old-fashioned and incredibly cutting-edge and high-tech, and then figuring out what's right for the patient and then letting, ma- letting that patient make an informed decision based on expectation of success, level of intervention and cost.
0: Now, there was... As always, quite a few jaw-dropping wow moments that we were like, ooh, maybe we need to explore that a bit more. You, in particular, said about the whole IVF at home. That was a
1: real insight into what could be, wasn't it? Yeah, it is. I think it's utterly fascinating. And I, I can see that that's the way that healthcare in general is going to go, isn't it? I think that's we're seeing more and more of that. And, in fact, I was listening to the television, I think, the other day, and they were talking about how you're going to have hospital at home So for acute illnesses, actually, those are going to be managed at home, which is going to be so interesting. And I think this is part of the pressures that are on the NHS, et cetera, et cetera. But for IVF, what that might open up to you to be able to manage at home will be so interesting, whether it's scanning or whatever I don't know who knows but it's fascinating isn't it
0: what did you think about the point that Stuart made about the downside I suppose of it is that say you are doing an ultrasound at home and then you feed that information back to the clinic he made the point that obviously the patient doesn't have the professional there to reassure them there and then of what it is that they're seeing and knowing what we know about the vulnerability that we feel when we're going through treatment and the tendency to go down the rabbit hole of, of, of Dr Google what do you think from
1: a, a freaking out point of view it might have on on people doing that? That's a really interesting question. If you think now, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, I hear this all the time, that patients struggle to contact their clinic when they've got a query. Yeah. They struggle to get yeah. through on the telephone. They might be that there is no other way or that emails perhaps take a long time to be answered. Phone calls take a long time to be returned if they leave a message. They're going to have to put things in place to allow better communication. And that's going to be a massive challenge them when it comes to resourcing, because once you do something like a scan and say, for example, I don't know, God forbid, I don't know what they're going to be doing, but what if they were doing a pregnancy scan? And the panic that that might induce in in, in an individual if they couldn't find a heartbeat, for example, or or whatever. You know, I'm not saying they're going to do this. I don't know. But I think it needs some careful consideration about how the communication process is going to occur. Yeah, that is a really good point.
0: And I did actually ask Stuart about somebody we could speak to more about the IVF at home conversation. And he has given me details of an expert in the field who I'm trying to track down. I think he's based in Flanders. I know I've been trying and message him on, on LinkedIn to avail as yet. But watch this space because it is something that we'd like to explore more. So before we get back to the episode, I just want to say a massive thank you to this series sponsor, Tomorrow, whose mission is to safeguard life's most precious cells using their technology to bring a new standard of care to the management of frozen eggs and embryos. Now the millions of frozen eggs and embryos under clinic care today are using tools and technologies not updated in decades. When Tomorrow came along, it brought much needed inner Innovation to IVF Labs. Learn more by visiting tomorrow.org. That's tmrw.org. Our next conversation is with Professor Nick Matlon from the London Women's Clinic, who's going to be talking about a new piece of tech that actually Kate, you told me about. And I and I'd love it if you can explain a bit more about it now because I know that you're not able to stick around for this chat with Nick because I I just loved when you first told me about this, you Mm. were so excited. Mm. I still am massively
1: excited about it. So the company is called Verso Bioscience and they are developing a medical device that basically monitors the uterine environment prior to IVF. And I find this absolutely fascinating and really exciting because... I view, and I think a lot of people do view, the uterine environment as a bit of a black hole. Once you have had an embryo transfer, it's left to Mother Nature to actually what happens then. And there's very little that we can do. If you think back to the early stages of IVF, we can manipulate the sperm to create a better quality sperm. We can manipulate the embryo by doing various different testing. So you've got this perfect, wonderful embryo ready to go back in. You pop it back in and then you just have to wait. Whereas if you can manipulate the environment, then there is a hope that you're going to have better success in your IVF cycle. So that's that's the hope, that's the vision. And the device looks a little bit like a copper coil and it can do some really clever stuff. So I think it's going to be so exciting and I'm, I'm really excited to, once I, I'm working with a company. So once I can learn more and get more involved in what's going on over the next few weeks, I'll be really excited to tell you more.
0: And we'll keep you posted. Obviously, you'll be able to follow Kate show and stuff on her, her socials. And we're going to hear from Nick now for him to just explain from a fertility clinician point of view, what this could mean to the IVF process and the future of IVF. So have a listen to Nick. So I'm delighted to welcome Professor Nick Macklin, who's the medical director at the London Women's Clinic and a medical advisor for Verso, which you just heard Kate share her excitement about. And Nick, a warm welcome to the podcast. I know we've had a bit of toing and fro and you're currently having to stay On holiday in Denmark, but there's worse places
3: you could be, hey? Indeed. yeah, it's very nice to join you. Thanks, Natalie.
0: So let's start by talking a bit more about what this device is monitoring. And I'd really appreciate you getting a bit more scientific in the explanation with us.
3: Well, the idea behind this device uh, has been to give us a a sense of indeed what's going on inside the uterus and why, why that's important in IVF. In many ways, it's very obvious to anyone who goes into any IVF clinical laboratory you know, when we do IVF, we put a lot of effort into getting eggs and fertilizing them and getting good quality embryos. And we put those embryos into incubators, very, very expensive pieces of kit, which are necessary to keep the embryos in a very, very controlled environment while they're growing in the laboratory instead of in the uterus, is what normally happens, of course. And the in, in, the, in those incubators, they need to be at just the right temperature, just the right people acidity, the pH we call that, and oxygen levels. And if they're not, then we know that embryos don't thrive. So it goes so far as the fact that embryologists, the people who look after embryos while they're in the lab, they're all linked to alarm systems that wake them up in the middle of the night if the oxygen drops or the carbon dioxide rises. So it occurred to us that really we needed to understand what was going on in the uterus, because it may well be that we go to all this effort to create lovely embryos, and then we put them back into what's been called a black box, um, and we find that they don't thrive possibly for very straightforward things like the oxygen level wasn't right or the temperature wasn't right. So based on that, the Verso company has developed a device which um, allows this to be measured, and as as Kate was mentioning, it looks a little bit like uh, a coil, a copper coil, And it sits in the device, it sits in the uterus for about seven days. And over that period of time, it measures very regularly the temperature, the oxygen, and soon it'll be be able to measure the pH as well. And what's amazing about this device is it has no batteries. It it uses what we call microwaves, it's charged up from outside, and it collects the data when it gets the message to do so, and then measures it, and then sends it back out to, to the receiver. Uh, And this means that the woman can wear this device for a few days, and we've done studies now, and it seems to be very well tolerated. And we can get a picture over those days over what's happening inside her uterus on all of these fronts. And what's been remarkable from our very first studies is how variable that is. So even over a 24-hour cycle, we can see big changes in these measurements, but also between women. And that would suggest that there is an optimum there, which is what we're trying to achieve in the laboratory. But not all women have the perfect incubator, if I can call it that way. And this will allow us to identify that as possibly being a reason why IVF doesn't succeed in some women, um, and then give us a promising way forward to perhaps improve outcomes in the future.
0: And I think, as a as a as a patient, hearing that, because when we're talking about people managing their emotions after a failed cycle there's so often a tendency to blame i didn't do that i didn't eat that i didn't go there and i wasn't feeling this um and just you saying that there's such a fluctuation in in what's going on with that environment it's 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 you know you're learning aren't you so how can we be blaming ourselves
3: ultimately well i think it's a really important point that that you know women do blame themselves when it doesn't work and it's almost always something that's not their fault at all It's just the way in which nature is operating. We need to remember that as humans, you know, we're not very good, actually, at reproducing compared with other animals. We're not so efficient. Um, And that's because a lot of the embryos that we make aren't perfect. Um, And one reason why that's the case is important, that women aren't constantly pregnant. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to look after all these children. So nature has built in this sort of system whereby only certain embryos can implant. So when it doesn't work, it's almost always down to some biological reason. Um, and what we're trying to do with this device is open up a new frontier, I suppose, in trying to understand why embryos don't always implant, because it's still very frustrating for, for many women, even though the embryos might be uh, appear to be very good quality that they don't implant. And we really need to understand more about why that's not happening.
0: So can we talk a bit more about what that information about the uterine environment Means then, so people can try and understand it better?
3: Well, there are many aspects to it. You know, we've always tended to think of the endometrium, the lining of the womb, as just being a very passive part of this process where the embryo invades through it and, you know, and really the endometrium just sits there. Well, our research and that of others has shown over the last few years that's very far from the truth. It's very active. It produces important secretions which bathe the embryo when it's placed in there and help nourish it before it implants. It sends signals from the mother to the embryo, telling the embryo which genes to switch on and switch off. This is before the embryo is even implanted, and this incubator function of the uterus is something we're only beginning to realize how crucial that might be and the funny thing is Nafi, is it's kind of been staring us in the face all these years with these incubators in the laboratory. you know clearly it's important it's about time we we understood it, so there are all these different aspects which affect embryo survival and we're beginning to get a good handle on it another area where we've been interested in you know these secretions this sort of medium that bathes the embryo when it before it implants you know we know that that has got lots of nutritional factors in it like amino acids and we've been able to show that those um, nutritional factors are affected by our diet So, you know, we're really learning that there are things we may be able to do to optimise that interuterine environment. But first, we need to measure it. And that is what this new device is going to allow us to do.
0: And am I right in saying that the only time a woman would potentially use this would be when she's going into an IVF cycle? So there's not a way of getting this information from her beforehand? Or is that the idea as well? Because what it sounds like we're saying is that if we could use this and if it fails then we can look at it and see why it failed rather than could there be a pre kind of like a, a, a you know to stop it failing in the first place
3: yes i mean i think initially um initially we will be using it in in uh, women who are going for ivf to to make sure the uterus yeah. is fine before we put that embryo in which so much has been invested into the uterus but you're quite right that, you know, if we are able to find that there is this variation and it looks as if there is, it could be that that could be one of the reasons why women are not conceiving. It's nothing to do with not being able to make embryos. Um, And that if we were to make that part of the initial fertility investigations, along with sperm analysis and making sure the woman's ovulating, the tubes are open, we could then say, is the incubator working? If we can call it that, the uterus, is it looking after the embryo? Then it might become part of the Standard fertility workup in the future, because at the moment we largely ignore the uterus during that phase. We just yeah. assume everything's fine, and that's partly because it's been a very difficult environment to to analyze. But it may well be that it becomes not something we do during IVF, but well before that.
0: So, in the case of an IVF cycle, what does it mean then at embryo transfer if we've got this information? What can we kind of
3: advise? Yes. So, where we are at the moment is we're looking at the variation that exists and looking as if there's any way we can change the environment using some medications that are all very, very available. So it could be the case that if we use this in a cycle before IVF, we can't use it during the cycle of IVF itself because it will prevent implantation having that device in. But if we make those measurements beforehand and we identify, for instance, that the oxygen level is lower than it should be, then there are medications we can give that increase the blood flow into the uh, uterus and will increase the oxygen exposure. Um, And that's a study we're just about to start uh, later this year at London Women's Clinic in order to assess whether this might be possible. For instance, the other element is temperature. It seems a little bit of an odd thing, that, because we assume we're all at 37 degrees all the time, except this coming week, of course. But we know now that that different parts of the body are at different temperatures. For instance, the brain is thought to be quite a lot warmer than the rest of our body. We just haven't had the means to to, uh, measure it. And it may be that there are some women in whom the uterine temperature is too high. Well, very straightforward way of reducing that is to use things like paracetamol, which reset the uh, temperature um, control of the body. So there are potential ways of adjusting it um, if we were to find that it needed to be optimised. And where does this sit in terms of the whole add-on conversation
0: when we're looking at what the ideal kind of protocols are going to look like in the future of IVF?
3: Well, I think the role of add-ons... Um, is going to remain important. I mean, the term add-on has become rather um, associated with negative uh, implications because it's seen as perhaps not always being necessary and being sold to patients inappropriately. And, you know, um, we have to recognise that there is that risk with add-ons. I think on the whole, they they are being offered judiciously, um, um, but we do need more scientific evidence that they're effective and, more importantly, in which women they are going to be effective. Um, now, it may well be that there are some women, for instance, uh, who have perfectly good embryos where we start to think, right, well, let's look elsewhere. In those women, let's look elsewhere and see if there's an endometrial factor. So rather than using this in everyone initially, we might say, well, look, let's just use it in, in patients where we think there may be an end, a uterine problem because the embryos seem fine. And that, that would allow us to introduce it in a judicious way. Um, without sort of making it part of routine IVF at this stage while we're gathering evidence as to its value. So
0: it's more likely to come into play after there's been a failed cycle, we'd say.
3: I think at the moment that's where we would envisage using it. And, and certainly in the yeah. study that we plan to do, it'll be offered, w- women will be asked to participate in the study. Of course, they have to give their consent to that and the, the study will need to be ethically approved. Um, but we would anticipate um, asking women who have had a failed cycle um to, to come and participate in the study. And I think clinically that will be the first group of patients that make use of this in the future if it is shown to be valuable. I mean
0: it's fascinating and really I can understand now more why Kate was so excited and I think in terms of the future of IVF what
3: would your ideal
0: prediction be knowing what you now know about
3: this technology? Well I think we're going to focus a lot more on the uterus and the endometrium than we have. You know the first 30 years of IVF has been all about the embryo and quite rightly because that was the big challenge was turning eggs inside the ovaries into embryos which you could Transfer, And there's been huge advance in that. IVF is much safer than it used to be. It's much more efficient. But we're still only getting around about one third of embryos to implant. And we need to focus now on the uterus. There are other areas where we are learning more about the uterus. Part of our work has identified that women have this ability, or at least the uterus does, to be able to test the quality of an embryo and decide whether to invest in it or not. Um, And this biosensor function of the uterus is something we're learning about. This new device is looking at the incubator. We have studies looking at the quality of the secretions. Can we improve those? And I think if we look ahead to to the future, I think we won't be making a lot of differences on the embryo side because we're already pretty much nailed that, I would say, um, in, in getting the best embryo and choosing the best embryo but we may well be learning a lot more about how the embryo implants and what we can do to make sure that that happens effectively. Um, And what all these tools are going to allow us to do is rather than just saying to patients, look, try this or try that, because we've heard it might work, it'll be, we've identified this issue with your uterus, here's a treatment for it. And that is going to be the big step change that we're going to make with this kind of uh, uh, advance.
0: And I think probably music to patients ears. those that find themselves going down Google rabbit holes and, are, yeah. you know, feeling that they've tried everything, and especially when it's unexplained. It must be such a relief for people that have got that unexplained fertility, uh, infertility diagnosis that we know causes people so much anger because they just want answers. And so maybe That's this right. is part of that answer as well. Maybe it is.
3: But, but I think, you know, whenever you hear about advances, there's always a health warning and that is we're not quite there yet. But um, you know, I think that yeah. the data is looking very, very promising. The the device, I think, will be a little while before it can be made available to clinics. But I personally believe that it's going to be a very helpful uh, advance for our field in the future.
0: Professor Nick Maclon, thank you so much for explaining that. Um, and I think it's really exciting to hear. So I do appreciate you giving us your time.
3: No, thank you very much. Pleasure.
0: So we've Already shared a couple of interesting developments in the world of IVF. I was really hoping to also add into the mix a conversation about AI and how that's going to be playing a role in the lab. It's already starting to. Unfortunately, the person that I was trying to speak to, we had a whole issue with different schedules, and then COVID got in the way, and we weren't able to. So that might again be something that we can share more with you. But I am going to put a link in the show notes to a conversation that happened with the International IVF Initiative, who you know I've talked about a lot because Giles, who was a former guest. He's part of the uh, International IVF Initiative And I've been helping them make a podcast But they've just been doing loads of total geeky content for the world of the embryologist and they shared a really interesting conversation recently about AI so I'll put that link in because like I say I wasn't able to factor that conversation into this one but something else that you've discovered Kate that you've been telling me about that is very fitting in in line with this conversation we're having about the future of
1: IVF is what type of pregnancy test it's an eco-pregnancy test Now, this is absolutely fascinating, I think, because if you can imagine how much plastic we use in pregnancy tests per year, you know, it's an extraordinary amount. A horrendous amount actually it makes your toes curl so i got contacted by an organisation called hopsy.co and they have produced a eco pregnancy test which is would you believe 99% paper that's really impressive yeah and i had a lovely chat with them today and they showed me the the pregnancy test and it's actually like card so it's resilient you don't you don't pee on it and it doesn't disintegrate it stays in its form and we had a really good chat and she was telling me that it takes 20 to 30 years to for a plastic pregnancy test to decompose that's horrendous isn't it yeah paper in itself so just a piece of paper takes only four to six weeks they're yet to find out exactly how long this eco pregnancy test takes because there is one percent that is a very very thin layer of plastic which covers up the test area you know where you get your little line so that has to be there for the accuracy of the test so they're yet to find out how long, but significantly less than 20 to 30 years and hopefully only a little bit more than four to six weeks. So that that's really exciting. I think it sounds really good. The lovely Lara at um, hopsy.co has offered to give our listeners a discount code of 20% right. if you just use the Fertility Podcast. And they're actually, on a per test basis, they're cheaper than Clearblue. Unlike Clear Blue, they don't do a one pack, and the reason they don't do a one pack is that it's not eco friendly to be sending one pack out. Ah, Whereas, there yeah, you go. so they're thinking about being eco in every single way. They're thinking about the the cost sustainability of trans- side of it, yeah, absolutely. So I just love this company. Um, I'm going to be doing an Instagram giveaway in the next couple of weeks. So do look out for that on at Your Nurse. And I'm excited about this. I think this is a lovely addition to what we've got available. And I think we should all be thinking, let's use eco-friendly pregnancy tests rather than any more plastics. And actually, that nicely brings us full
0: circle back to one of our first episodes where we were talking about whether you know you do care about how green your IVF clinic is. And as we were saying at the start of this chat most of you were saying that you're not because it kind of I'm sure feels out of your hands but this is a way of regaining the control and doing your bit for the environment so I definitely think it's one to watch and thank you for sharing that yeah I think you know if I can
1: encourage any of you just to be a bit eco with your pregnancy test then we're make we're helping to make a a change aren't we I don't know whether you saw my Instagram post today but I posted a plastic medicine bottle which I found washed up on the beach in the Maldives. And it broke my heart when I found that plastic medicine bottle. And I thought, how many times have I dispensed drugs to my patients out of plastic medicine bottles? How many of those yeah. have I thrown in the bin? And yeah. did one of those, end- is that my one that ended up... Yeah. Oh, it broke my heart when I saw that. It's such a clean, beautiful island, but every day you saw some plastic washed up.
0: I've done voiceovers on the amount of plastic waste there are in our oceans, and it is heartbreaking to see the impact it has on marine life and i think we can all have that in our minds i know there's a lot going on if you're listening to this and you're mid-cycle and what have you but you know the world doesn't stop does it and Mm -hmm. so we want to try and provide the future for the babies that we're hoping to bring into the world um on that note that is it from us for this series of the fertility podcast kate mentioned her insta yeah, um, you can you can get in touch with me on mine at Fertility Poddy. We're going to be on a break for a little while again. We're going to be back around November time for Fertility Awareness Week with more conversations about fertility in the workplace because you know that that is a massive passion for Kate and myself in the work that we're doing with Fertility Matters at Work. So do go back and listen to previous episodes. Do keep an eye on both of our Instas. The Brewer 2 is going to be having a little break as well. Um, as we just realign our plans. But we'd love your feedback. We'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast. Just go to wherever you listen to your podcast. Apple Podcasts is the easiest. Or you can get in touch with us. But thank you so much for being with us again. We hope this different take has been of interest. And if you want to know more behind the scenes IVF stuff as well, let us know when you're getting in touch. Thank you so much for your support as always. Thank you. We really appreciate it. And until the next time. So thanks again to this series sponsor, Tomorrow, who can track and monitor the vitrified eggs and embryos stored within its system through its unique and proprietary RFID technology. Their solution also removes most of the manual steps in the current cryomanagement process, reducing the possibility of human mistakes. So to learn more or to talk to your healthcare provider about storing your embryos or eggs with Tomorrow, visit tomorrow.org. That's T-M-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O-R-O mrw.org